Thank you for listening to the first episode of the AT Tapes, a new podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training. The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Hibbard, and I will be your host for this podcast. Currently, I am a faculty member in the athletic training program at the University of Alabama and I have a research interest in shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at E.E. Hibbard. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers, thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. On today's episode of the AT Tapes, we will discuss the utility of baseline assessment for concussions and post-concussion biomechanics and injury risk. Julian Schmidt and Rob Lionel are faculty in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Georgia. Julian and Rob are researchers who focus on the clinical continuum of concussion. We will start with introductions of our guests today. Julianne, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Lizzie. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, Julianne, can you tell us a little bit about why you became an athletic trainer? Yeah, um, I became an athletic trainer because I was one of those high school kids that sincerely identified as an athlete, and I had a true, genuine interest in playing sport. And then as I got more involved, I fell in love with the medicine side, too. Can you give us a brief overview of your educational background? Sure. Um, I did my undergraduate uh, at Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego, California. From there, I went to UNC Chapel Hill for my master's, and I also stayed for my PhD in human movement science. And how did you get involved with concussion research? Um, I really started as a master's student. Um, I was working with some of the youth hockey teams in the uh, North Carolina area, traveling with them, and um, became involved heavily with the Matthew Feller um, Sport-Related Traumatic Brain Injury Research Center and um, decided it was where I wanted to be and where I wanted to stay for my PhD. Great. Thank you. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lizzie. Good to see you. Uh, Why did you become an athletic trainer? Uh, That's a good question. So I I got into the Marine Corps uh, after high school and really had no idea what an athletic trainer was. Um, but through the Marine Corps, I got very interested in, in working out and uh, dealing with injuries and chronic, you know, lower body injuries quite a bit. And as I was leaving the Marine Corps, I kind of discovered the athletic training profession, and I thought it fit perfect with my interests. Can you give us a brief overview of your educational background? Absolutely. I got my uh, bachelor's and master's at the Illinois State University, go Redbirds. Um, before moving to uh, Chapel Hill and UNC North Carolina or UNC Chapel Hill uh, to get my PhD. Great. So Julianne and Rob are co-directors of the UGA Concussion Research Laboratory. The mission of the UGA Concussion Research Lab is to improve concussion management by conducting novel and innovative research, providing cutting-edge patient care, and engaging the University of Georgia student body and local community through outreach and education programs. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research lab and the work that you all are doing? 
Sure. Um, do you want to start with who works in the sure, lab? Sure, yeah. So we, uh, right now, the two of us co-direct the lab, and we have uh, a, a research coordinator, Emily Miller, who really runs the show and keeps things moving forward. Uh, and then right now we have five doctoral students uh, ranging from their uh, first year all the way to their fourth year. We have Michelle Weber in her fourth year, uh, then Landon Lemke, Rachel Johnson, and Melissa Anderson are in their second year, and uh, Rachel Lee is in her first year. So a good group of people. And then we also have uh, quite a few undergraduate researchers that uh, do a lot of different things for us. And what are some current projects or areas that are focuses of the lab at UGA? Um, so we have quite a diverse research portfolio. Um, our two funded projects are the CARE Consortium and the Mind Matters Challenge. These are both funded by the NCAA and Department of Defense. CARE Consortium is a really large multi-site study focused, focusing on concussion evaluation. Um, Mind Matters Challenge is focusing on improving concussion reporting. So we're trying to learn why athletes don't report concussions, try to change that culture, fix it, and address that so that we can get them to, in the door for um, proper care of concussion. Um, we also have developed a focus on driving following concussion and the safety of doing so. Um, we're currently looking at tackle football versus flag football, head impact biomechanics. Um, and then we also have a, an interest in musculoskeletal injury risk following concussion. So in today's podcast, our first topic is going to be on the utility of baseline concussion testing. While there has been a lot of research in this area, it seems that there still is a debate on the utility of baseline testing in a clinical setting. So from your experience, both research and clinical, what is the utility of baseline assessment and how can this information be utilized for evaluation and return to play following concussion? Yeah, so uh, it's a really good question, Lizzie. And I think really the beauty of sports is that we have our patients in our hands before they're injured. And that's really where baseline testing comes from, right? We're, establish we're giving them concussion assessment um, tools that if they were to become concussed, we could compare back to. And the idea behind it is really good. And, and having something individualized to you as a comparator is really um is really useful and really helpful because it's it's exactly what um, what represents you. Um, but as you know, there's many challenges to that, and there's a lot of um, of issues with baseline testing that make the interpretation of them a bit tricky or difficult. So, with athletic trainers in a variety of settings, working with a range of ages, are there age minimums for baseline testing? Um, can you use this in elementary school children, or is that something later on? Um, yeah, so with, it's definitely a, a different ball game with a younger athlete. They're changing by the day, by the minute. Um, if you know a kid one week, you, they're a totally different kid the next week. And so um, at a minimum, if you are going to do baseline testing under about the age of 14, you should be doing it at least annually. But even then, there's a cognitive maturation process that occurs within a year's period, and that's just inherent. Um, there are also different tools that work better for kids than do adults. So um, the way we do baseline testing may need to be a little bit more one-on-one, -on -one, a little more engaged. You might need to have parent input on things like symptom checklists and things like that, like you wouldn't in a college or high school setting. Yeah, and I, I think our experience has been, if, if you are going to use kind of standard tools for children, 
Um, there's some caution there, but it's also, you've got to slow the process down. You've got to explain uh, really, like Julian said, at a more individual level, what is about to happen and how they need to proceed. Um, and so it's a much, it can be a much more tedious process with children uh, because there's a lot more uh, demand from the administrator. It's not just get people in a room and set up the test. Here's the login. We're ready to go. It needs to be much more individualized if you're going to have success with, with young children. So age is a potential complicating factor. Are there any other specific conditions like ADHD or anxiety that influence the utility of baseline testing? I mean, there definitely are. Um, age is definitely a factor. Like you mentioned, we have a higher rate of invalidity with younger athletes too. Um, but people have shown that people with uh, athletes with ADHD or other conditions like even migraine history or um, learning disabilities may perform lower at baseline. But this to me creates a challenge in establishing a baseline. But is actually the exact reason why we established the baseline because, because of those individualized factors um, that someone with ADHD, for example, may not ever compare well to a norm um, on certain things that require a lot of attention. So uh, getting an individualized metric on them may be the, the most important target group. Yeah, and I think it's, this discussion is a good one because it points out some of the limitations clinically to baseline testing, to, to computerized cognitive assessments. There's a lot of factors. The amount of sleep you got the night before, any other anxiety or stress you might be under that can affect, amongst a lot of others, that can affect your performance. And so I think the most important thing clinically, whether you do baseline testing or not, and we'll talk more about it, but is that it's one part to a concussion evaluation. And when it gets kind of propped up and made to be the most important thing that you do, then you lose sight of the other clinical pieces. Number one, just a good clinical examination. Of course, a symptom checklist, a balance assessment, probably some visual or vestibular testing and, and other things. So it's important to keep in mind that it's one part of an assessment. And a big reason is because there's a lot of things that can affect the outcomes. Yeah, and I will, I'll add to that too, that um, some of those things are inherent, like you have ADHD or you have learning disability, but some of it's just motivation. And I think what Rob is saying, and I completely agree, is that baseline testing is just inherently flawed. You always have to take it with a grain of salt. It isn't a perfect representation of their max performance every single time. So you brought up um, motivation. So since usually baseline testing is used as a return to sport indicator, are there any concerns about patients trying to perform poorly intentionally on baseline testing so that it makes them easier to return to sport? Yeah, yeah, no, this is a problem. Uh, and it's, uh, we're actually doing some work on it now and others have in the past. Uh, hopefully we can get that out pretty soon. But this idea of sandbagging is kind of the common term where you purposely try to do poor on the baseline assessment. And so I think most people know that baseline, uh, most, most computerized tests have a, a validity indicator. So you take a test and if you score very poorly, uh, there's different metrics, but if the test can flag a, um, the assessment itself can flag a test as being invalid, where the, the, the platform is telling you that the person didn't try, they just click through things, it's not good. Uh, and so clinically, those invalidity indicators are super important. Um, honestly, every time you apply, you do baseline testing, 
you need to give a quick check to the invalidity scores. If you have a baseline assessment with multiple domains that are invalid, it, it, it's useless for you clinically. And in fact, it can make your clinical decision-making more difficult because now you've got a baseline that looks like it doesn't at all reflect this person's cognition and you're trying to compare post-injury to it. So sandbagging is certainly a problem. Uh, we do our best to try to give instructions about it being an important assessment. We tell the athletes we'll bring them back. They'll have to do it again if the effort isn't there, if the scores are lower than what we would expect, and, um, and, and hopefully that helps a little bit, but it's, it's still an issue. Yeah, and I'll just reiterate that mo a lot of people are not checking these invalidity indicators at baseline, and that's a, a bad practice. It's, it's below the standard of care. You have to be – there's really no point in baseline testing if you're just going to complete it and throw it in a drawer and not check the scores. And um, you should – if you identify an invalid baseline, ideally you have the person repeat it so that you can get a valid measure or, um, or at least take – extreme caution when using it for post-concussion impairment identification. So while there are a lot of potential issues or complicating factors in baseline, it's still a really important part of the evaluation um, and can give the clinician a lot of really useful information. So you mentioned a little bit about the standard of care. So right now, what is the standard of care or best practices when it comes to baseline testing? Um, is that, are there guidelines for that? Yeah, that's a really hard question to answer, Lizzie. It's, um, it's just not that straightforward. So it is recommended in the NATA position statement that um, if possible to re repeat baseline testing annually. Um, but what that doesn't account for is how that's actually accomplished and, um, and what that looks like and whether that's what everyone is actually doing because that's what really represents the standard of care. But yeah, I think using some form of baseline, if you have the resources available to you, can be advantageous. If you don't, but you have good reasoning, I think that's a sound argument. I think you can use it selectively. And if you have a robust post-concussion evaluation that errs on the side of being more conservative, then you're gonna, you're gonna be better off. Um, there's sometimes, in some cases, using bad baseline scores could actually open you up to more liability um, than if you didn't do baseline testing at all and acted more conservatively because you're comparing to norms. So we've talked a lot about the utility or potential utility of baseline testing, but I want to talk a little bit now about sort of the mechanics of baseline testing. And we're using that term over and over again, but what are the recommended components of baseline assessments? What things are typically included? Well, are you ready? It's a long list. <laughs> <laughs> um, seating should be comfortably spaced, not directly next to or across from each other. You should remove extraneous sounds and interruptions. You should have proper lighting so there's not too much glare off the computer screen. You have to have clean and functional computer mice. You have to have a, a test administrator present at all times. It is recommended that you have no higher of a ratio than six people being that with the test being administered to, to one administrator. Um, you need to have clear group instructions and rules. Um, and you need to test when fatigue is not an issue. But as we know, when is fatigue not really an issue for an athlete? That's a really thing, a hard thing to get around. 
On top of that, we recommend use of a neuropsychologist, which are not always available to all um, athletic trainers, um, that you check for invalidity, as we talked about earlier, and that you repeat the testing if invalid, which can create an additional time commitment. And just to, just to expand a little bit on the invalidity, and we don't mean to harp on it, but it is important, and we actually have some data that are in review with the Journal of Athletic Training right now that shows that we found that only about 75% of athletic trainers who administer baseline tests actually check for invalid scores. So, you know, one out of four athletic trainers never looks at the baseline assessment to see if it was invalid or not. And, and like we said before, that presents a huge challenge um, when that individual that had an invalid score then sustains a concussion. It really can cloud clinical judgment and make it more challenging than it already is. So these all seem like computerized assessments. Are there any paper and pencil assessments anymore? Or are they all now require technology? No, I, we're still using paper and pencil. The SCAT-5 is paper and pencil. SAC is still paper and pencil. BEST still uses paper and pencil, although there's app versions of them too. So yeah, we're definitely still using some of those. And I think that's important because those are very accessible and, and cheap and for free in most cases. So making those readily available is, is critical. So how do the results that you get on those paper and pencil assessments compare to some of these computerized assessments? I, obviously one is more technolo technologically advanced and they give you different information, but if you are limited in resources, is doing something better than doing nothing? Yeah, I, I think yes, doing something is better than doing nothing. The, the computerized cognitive tests, uh, neurocognitive tests are based on paper and pencil tests. So what these, uh, the, these companies have done is take traditional neuropsychological tests, um, for example, a simple digit matching, simple digit coding uh, is a part to almost every neurocognitive test where you get a, an answer key that has the number associated with a, a symbol. And then the, uh, the participant has to then, they get presented with a number or a symbol and they have to put the associated number or symbol with it. So that all stems from traditional paper and pencil based testing. So these computer tests we're using are new technology applied to old uh, tests. So it makes it easier to administer, especially in large settings. Um, in many cases, there's less training uh, because the computer uh, interprets the results for you. Um, but they're all using things that we've known about for a long time in the neuropsychology world. And I'll add to that too, that um, you can use what I call a hybrid model where um, if you don't have the re resources to do it right, you don't have to necessarily have a baseline test on everyone. You could identify those that might not compare well to norms, such as people with ADHD or a learning disability or any variety of condition that you think might make post-concussion evaluation difficult and, and, and have them complete a baseline test well versus having everyone complete it sort of halfway or in a distracted, um, uh, hard to interpret manner. So do you have any advice for how athletic trainers can advocate for baseline testing with administrators and coaches so that they're able to get more resources to be able to follow some of those best practice guidelines? Yeah, I think especially in younger children, so if you're a high school athletic trainer or, or at a level even younger than that, there's a, 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 some good evidence to suggest that, that those children may, uh, it may be more appropriate to have baselines in them, especially because 
they're changing, their cognition is changing so rapidly. Um, so I think you could use the research as a tool if you're a clinician here to go to your administrators and say, look, you know, I, if, I'm, if we want to have the best standards of care for our athletes, um, we should consider ways that we can effectively uh, uh, baseline test them. But that being said, I think um, you might also consider some, some, some people to help, right? If Julia just talked about the ratio one to six, um, if you're the single athletic trainer at the high school by yourself, uh, and I'm not sure that you have the time to do it that way. So if you can have some resources allocated to you from a, you know, financial resources allocated to help bring in other people, at least for a period, to help do the testing appropriately, I think that could be a huge advantage. And you're gonna end up with much better clinical data um, that is more likely to uh, properly inform your post-concussion care. Can you all suggest some resources for clinicians to use to get information about best practices for baseline testing and the things to help them make those judgment calls on what to include and who should be tested? Um, yeah, so that's a, a really um, good question, a tricky one as a clinician, right? But um, conferences often are a great resource for this, finding out and seeking out experts in this field. Um, the position statements are a good, uh, no pun intended, but baseline <laughs> um, for getting sort of the, the gist of what to do, but um, it doesn't necessarily always reflect um, what will work best in your setting. And so getting around other clinicians that are really doing this and doing this well is the way to go. And so uh, if I were a high, a high school athletic trainer um, and, and working on my own, I would probably seek out like a local concussion clinic to see what are they doing or maybe how could we partner to best um, accomplish this task. So it seems like there is a lot of information that's out there and definitely conferences are helpful in um, kind of putting some of that information together and uh, working with those concussion clinics. You can also follow them on Twitter um, at UGA Concussion and they post a lot of really good articles and clinical practice recommendations that can give you some more up-to-date information. So to finish this topic off, what's on the horizon for baseline testing? Is there anything new or different that you think we'll see soon included? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, we, we have seen an emergence, I think, in the last few years of some tests that are geared more towards children, towards pediatrics. Um, I'm not from, I don't think there's been uh, quite the body of research, so I don't think we know yet how effective they are. There's just so much variability in kids that it's hard. Um, but I think we may see more and more uh, as athletic trainers move into kind of these younger athlete settings, which I think is fantastic. I think we may see more and more tools geared towards um, children. So, so far we've been discussing using baseline testing to help in evaluating recovery following concussion, but there has been some emerging research on looking at how these individuals following concussion may actually be at an increased risk for sustaining non-contact musculoskeletal injuries. Can you all speak to this and any evidence that currently exists on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. So this, this area is a little more emerging. And I think before about 2015, there was really no information on it. It was really anecdotal. And that's what got us interested from our own clinical practice. It just seemed like when people would go back after concussion, they were getting you know ankle sprains and, and, and uh, muscle strains much easier or, or more often. And, um, so that led to kind of a line of research that's really evolved now, and there's quite a few groups that have looked at it. 
Um, and, you know, we've published in high school and college. There's uh, professional athletes, uh, studies with professional athletes, and even a recent study in uh, military service members. Um, and, and the literature is, is fairly conclusive in, you know, 10 or 15 or so studies that it, it appears that musculoskeletal injury risk is increased after concussion. So these are people that have, that have cleared normal return to play protocols. They've been deemed recovered from concussion. They go back to play. And within about a year or so, um, they seem to be at, at higher risk for musculoskeletal injuries. The trick is that we don't have good rationale as to why. So by normal metrics, we just talked about you know, baseline uh, and, and cognitive testing, they appear to be normal, but there's still something going on. So whether it's something that we're not able to detect with our current measures um, or, or we're just not looking for, um, there appears to be something that's leading to this increased risk of injury. So you say that potentially it could be things that we're not looking for. Are there ways that athletic trainers can screen for this? I know some people put in screening protocols for lower extremity injury, yeah. not in concussed patients. Are there some of those screening tools, could they be used in concussed patients before returning to sport to evaluate their neuromuscular control? Yeah, so, um, so far it doesn't seem like many of the clinical assessments available, such as the um, fusionetics or the functional movement screen, um, are quite there to identify these very subtle biomechanical differences that we see using, you know, small center of pressure changes or small, small joint angle changes um, in a 3D motion capture space. Um, they're just... Uh, uh, not quite able to see them at this level. Now, that's not to say that they couldn't in the future, but at this point, there's not a lot in the hands of clinicians that could really aid them in identifying something this, this subtle. So do you have any suggestions of how you could use this information of knowing that they're at an increased injury risk during concussion rehabilitation? And mm -hmm. I know that you just said you can't screen for it and you don't mm -hmm. exactly know the proposed mechanism, but knowing the outcome of increased injury risk seems mm -hmm. like we want to do something. So do you have some recommendations of anything we can do? Yeah, yeah, no, great question. And I think it's, uh, Julian's right, we don't have unfortunately this list we can give to clinicians and look for this and do this um, but I think we're working on it I promise we are it might take some time but uh, we're trying to figure out ways that we can get out of the lab and into the clinic and, and give clinicians some tools they might use um, so I think the I, I'm hopeful there's no uh, research on this but I'm hopeful that you know in the last couple of years we've really switched the concussion um, management it used to be you know a dark room close your eyes and sleep until you feel better and we're now really getting into this more this idea of active recovery where athletes are um, if their symptoms as long as they don't exacerbate their symptoms they're able to do some light physical activity even when they still may be suffering from the concussion and so hopefully uh, something like that can help at least uh, minimize any changes that happen um, or, or anything or, or whatever might be leading to the the specific cause of the increased risk of injury. Other than that, I think it's important, like any other injury, right, you know, functionally testing our athletes is critical. You, you're coming back from an ankle sprain, a knee sprain. Um, we, we do, you know, really detailed rehab and really focused rehab. But the last thing you do before you return an athlete is always put them in a functional situation and see how they respond, you know, in a safe environment, have them do, you know, cone drills or whatever mimics the demands of their position. 
And I don't know that it's any different for concussion, but it just hasn't been something that we've, we've done. So I, there's no scale to measure or there's no um, uh, magic checklist to use. But I think consider some of these really functional uh, tests in returning your athletes from concussion. See how they move, see how they react, put them under uh, dual task conditions, which just means that they do some kind of cognitive task while they're moving. It could be something as simple as subtracting backwards from the number with the number seven. Just subtract backwards and go through the motion to try to put them in a situation where they're engaging um, the brain and, and, and complicating the task and see how they respond. So this is an emerging area of research with a lot of potential implications for improving patient outcomes. What are some projects that you guys are currently working on that to address this? I know, I know you hit on a couple already, but what are some specific things or things that you think need to be done immediately to start to answer this question? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the uh, um, emerging areas that, that maybe has some really good clinical implications is the idea of tandem gait. Uh, and so um, we're involved with a couple other sites looking at uh, tandem gait after injury and can we use fairly inexpensive um, technology like a cell phone, for example, or small accelerometers you can place on the body to detect um, people who have, you know, functional balance issues. So not just standing still, but actually moving. Uh, so I think that's an area that could be um, really important for clinicians if we can kind of get to the bottom of, of this idea of a clinical test that would help give us some indicators. You guys have a lot of work to do in these areas to answer all my questions. Yeah, thanks, Lizzie. You're, you're <laughs> right, though. We do. Um, so as we finish up this episode, I'm going to ask both of you to summarize your take-home points on these topics. So we'll start with Julianne of what would your take-home message be to clinicians for how they can use this information to improve patient outcomes? We discussed baseline testing has a lot of utility, but really only if you do it well. And so it's really a matter of like any job, big or small, do it right or not at all. And in this case, having a bad baseline is really a waste of your time, the athlete's time, and can really create a lot of issues with post-concussion interpretation. But don't take that to mean to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Baseline testing can still be really useful. You just have to be able to do it right. Um, and you can still uh, uh, properly evaluate a concussion in the absence of a baseline. Using normative data is a perfectly acceptable alternative when a baseline is not available. Thank you. And Rob, what would your take-home message for clinicians be? Yeah, and just regarding concussion and musculoskeletal injury, I hope clinicians realize this is really an emerging area that we're just kind of scratching the surface on. Um, and then I think it's a, a, a amazing area for athletic trainers. It's time for people to think outside the box a little bit. We have some great concussion assessments that are very static. The balance error scoring system, it's a great assessment for what, it, what it's good at, which is acute diagnosis. But you don't stand still on one leg when you participate in sport. So I think it's a great time for athletic trainers, clinicians specifically, to really start thinking about how, how we might make um, concussion return to play assessment and recovery more functional. Let's try to put people safely into an environment that more mimics their sport uh, and see if we can learn um, some novel ways to, to look at uh, this link between concussion and injury. Well, I'm looking forward to the work that's going to be coming out of your lab soon. And I appreciate the time that you all took with us today to share some clinical recommendations. So thank you for your time and for the work that you continue to do in, conduct in conducting research that can be applied clinically. Thank you, Lizzie. Thanks, Lizzie. 
Well, that is it for today's The AT Tapes. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for next month's episode of the AT Tapes.